Well, it is good to be together today, and um, just as our kids make their way in, I'm just going to ask for the Lord's help one last time. I feel it. I feel that I need that. So let's just pray. Lord, please help. Uh, Lord, please speak. Uh, Lord, please guard against uh, all of the things that could get in the way right now, Uh, particularly, Lord, guard against uh, myself. Lord, I'm, I'm just a man, and I'm frail and fallen, and I need your grace. And Lord, I just pray that you would speak today through your word that your spirit would move, and we just ask for your help. We need it. We need it every day. We need your help in everything we do, uh, and Lord, I'm particularly mindful of that in this moment, so please help, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I gather together with uh, a group of preachers from this city, and we get together every Wednesday morning. If you ever hear me talking about the preaching workshop, this is what it is, and so we come, and we bring our sermons for that week, and we, we discuss it, and we, uh, we edit each other's sermons, and you have been greatly blessed by many edits from that workshop, I promise you. Uh, and we discuss books on preaching, and we talk about, you know, what, what is the task of preaching. And one of the topics that comes up about twice a year is we'll, t- we'll ask the question, when is it appropriate for a preacher to pause a sermon series and to address uh, a current cultural event? Obviously, you don't want to do that all the time. You don't even want to do that half the time, or else it's going to feel like CNN is, is writing the, the, the preaching schedule. But is there ever a time when it's appropriate? And of course, we agree there, there are times. September 11th, it'd be hard to find a church in America that wasn't stopping to open the Bible and to apply that truth to what they were going through. Even a year and a half ago, we went through this with COVID, didn't we? It was hard to find a church that wasn't navigating through COVID and, uh, and asking the question, how do we respond? Well, church, I do feel like we have hit a moment where we should pause. And in fact, it doesn't even necessarily feel like a pause. For me, it feels like we're, we're zooming in on a case study for what we talked about last week. Our brother Matt last week talked about what, what the law teaches us about sin. And last week we learned that sin is serious. We learned that, ser- that sin runs deep and affects the whole community. And it has long-lasting consequences. Well, today I want to stop and reflect on the 751 unmarked graves in Saskatchewan, the 215 unmarked graves in Kamloops, and the many more that will be likely to come in the weeks and months ahead. I I feel like it's appropriate for us as a church family to stop, to pause, to reflect. And I want to say before we go any further that my intention this morning is not to detail and analyze the history of the residential schools. There are people who are far better equipped for that task, and they're doing that, and I'm thankful for that. I also have no desire to foray into politics or to pretend that I'm sufficiently equipped to navigate through any of this, this terrible tragedy. I'm not, and so that's not what we're going to do. But what I do feel called to do this morning, as the pastor of this little church in Little Aurelia, in Little Ontario, is to spend some time thinking and praying with you about how we can resemble Christ in this cultural moment we find ourselves in. I feel like we can do that this morning and we can do that fruitfully. And to that end, I want to invite you to look with me in your Bible to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. If you're familiar at all with the book of Romans, that you know that this is the most theologically rich letter of all of the Apostle Paul's letters. And he wrote some rich letters. But here in Romans, we find this robust presentation of the gospel. 
the depth, it's so deep. You could mine this for your entire life. You'd never get to the bottom. It is that rich in theological truth. It's like a fire hose of theology. And what we learn in this letter, as we learn in all of the Apostle Paul's letters, is that deep theological truth cannot be separated from robust Christian living. They go hand in hand, meaning what we believe must necessarily change us. It must. You cannot separate the two. Right belief leads to right behavior. If it doesn't, it's not right belief. That's what Paul says in his letters. Jesus said the same thing. He said, if anyone comes to me and says, Lord, Lord, did we not do these things in in your name? He said, I never knew you. Depart from me. Right in, in the book of James, he talks about if you go to someone who is in poverty and you say, be, be warmed, be well fed, but you don't give them any food. He says, that's nothing. Right? What you believe needs to be paired with how you live and how you respond. And in Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul turns the corner on right belief into right behavior. In fact, turn the corner is the wrong language because he's, there is no corner. He said, they go together. And so if you look, for example, at verses 1 to 2, of chapter 12, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brother, therefore, in light of this glorious gospel I've been unpacking, in light of the fact that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death, in light of the fact that you are now free and cleansed and redeemed, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Just pause there. That language pops a little bit when you're walking through a study in Leviticus, doesn't it? He says, in light of the fact that now Jesus is the sacrifice that cleanses us from our sin, and it's a one-time offering, and it's completed, and it's fulfilled, in light of that, now as you make your way to the tabernacle to worship, instead of bringing that goat or that cattle or that dove, put yourself on the altar as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So he says, in light of what you know, Christian, you must live differently than the world around you. You must. You you need to daily come and put your life on that altar so God doesn't need another goat. He doesn't need another dove to be sacrificed. The perfect sacrifice has been made for your sin. Now what God expects of us is to put our lives on the altar and to respond in gratitude to this grace that we've received. To live differently. Now how do we, how do we live differently in this cultural moment that we find ourselves in? How should we look in this cultural moment? Well, actually, as I was walking through chapter 12, there was so much here that we could apply so much here that we could rightfully meditate on, but I do want to zoom in on one verse in particular, and I want to spend our time just meditating on and applying this verse. Hear now God's holy, inspired, living and active word to us today. Romans chapter 12, verse 15. He says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. That's it. That's, that's what I want to spend our time thinking about today. To be a follower of Christ, to resemble Christ in this world, means that we must cultivate empathy. Did you know that? Uh, Sometimes I think we can despise empathy, particularly 
particularly, I'd say, in our culture where it seems like sometimes people weaponize or try to monetize empathy, and it turns into this weird game of look at me and look at how I feel. Sometimes we can become calloused. But to be like Christ and to live a life that reflects this gospel means that we have to cultivate empathy. And in particular, we, we need to learn how to weep with those who weep. We need to resemble Jesus in this moment. So how, That's our task, to resemble Jesus. The Jesus who is close to the brokenhearted. The Jesus who, who comforts those who are crushed in spirit. The one who laid his hand on the unclean lepers. The one who left the 99 to find the one who was astray. The one who said, let the little children come to me. The one who said that it would be better to have a giant millstone attached to your neck to be thrown into the depth of the sea than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. We're called to resemble him in this moment. And so I want to just invite you just to put aside your agendas and and all of your ideas. And just for a moment, let's just try to empathize with our neighbors. Imagine that our land was overtaken by a new culture, a people who didn't talk like us, people who didn't dress like us, worship like us. Imagine they came to your home dressed in their religious garb, accompanied by their police, and they knocked on your door and they took your children. There goes Luke and Abby and Noel, and there's nothing that you can do about it. And ten years later, Luke and Abby come home, but Noel doesn't. She's buried somewhere in a field. And Luke and Abby don't want to talk about what happened to them. And Luke and Abby are never the same, and your community is actually full of families just like yours, permanently changed. And another 20 years go by, and the culture that destroyed your family is seemingly oblivious. They live just a few kilometers from your community, and yet they don't have a clue why you hate coming into town. They don't understand why suicide is so prevalent in your community. And they don't understand why such a large portion of your community has turned to substance abuse. And 25 more years go by and someone finally discovers the field, the field where little Noel is buried. And everyone stands up and says, we had no idea what a tragic chapter in our nation's history. But it's not your history, it's your present. It's your community. It's your baby. Our neighbors are are hurting, deep down hurting in this moment. And I want more than anything in the world to be able to point them to Jesus and to tell them that his Holy Spirit cries out from our hearts with groanings that are too deep for words, the kind of groaning that you need in this moment, and that Jesus stands with open arms and that he's the only one in which we can find rest for our weary souls. I want to tell them that. But church, they've been introduced to a different Jesus. They've been introduced to a Jesus who was painted for them by a people who claim to be doing the Lord's work. How do we even begin to respond to this? I would suggest what we can do for a start is to spend some time this morning thinking about how we can weep with those who weep. First, how do we weep with those who weep? In this moment, I'd say first, we need to refuse to be indifferent. Refuse to be indifferent. You see, we're a culture that's saturated with news. And I said this just a few weeks ago. I said to you, hey, turn off the news. We were, we were in Philippians 4. I said, turn off the news. Stop reading every article that comes out. Stop putting every problem in the world on your shoulders. It's too big for you to carry. Stop it. I said that. And I meant it. 
But that doesn't apply here. On this particular issue, I would say, friends, turn on the news and read that article and learn. This is a big problem that you should feel on your shoulders because this is our story. And these are our neighbors. And we can't afford to sit this one out. We can't afford to plug our ears and close our eyes. If we care about evangelism at all, if we have any desire to reach our neighbors with the gospel, then we need to take the time to understand what happened. Because this is the culture where we're now doing ministry. And the Apostle Paul, he was, he was brilliant at this. He always understood the culture where he was ministering. And he went in, and it wasn't to receive a pat on the back. It was so that he could share the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we do this. The Apostle Paul famously said in 1 Corinthians 9, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. Why? That I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. No, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Why? That I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. See, and maybe this is where we, sometimes we're we're afraid to touch empathy because we're we're worried. The Apostle Paul didn't come into this empathy. He didn't seek to understand so as to be affirmed so that the culture would look at him and say, look at how progressive he is. Look how much he understands. No, he he dove in because he loved people and because he loves Christ And because he wanted to share that glorious news of the gospel with anyone and everyone. So he would do whatever it took. That by all means he might win some. We live just five kilometers from the Chippewas of Rama First Nation Reserve. If we want to have any opportunity of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with those neighbors. We cannot bury our head in the sand as this information is rolling out. We need to know what happened. We need to know what impact it has had on an entire generation of our neighbors. We need to know how we can pray. We need to know how we can help. This was a nationwide tragedy with generational effects, and we are notorious for spending five minutes on an issue and caring deeply for five minutes before moving on to what's next. We can't do that here. can't move on to what's next. If we're going to weep with those who weep, we need to resist that urge to tap out and to move on. And second, and this is the one that's hard, if we're going to weep with those who weep, we need to lay down the excuses. You know, just four weeks ago when we met for our first outdoor service, and, and you remember that was so exciting. It was the first time we'd worshiped together in over a year, and we had our senior saints with us in the field, and it was this glorious day. And then we had a lot of people honking at us, shouting at us. And I remember the one car, and, and they leaned out the window and they said, 215 children, shame on you. And my first response was to feel sorry for myself. First response was to have all of these excuses welling up. I wanted to say, that wasn't us. We're not even Catholic. Or it's, it's hey, it's, that was a while ago. Hey, you know, I, I wanted to make excuses because I'm, that's what I do. I'm an excuse maker. But here's the thing. Unfortunately, whether we like it or not, 
the people who played a major role in this terrible chapter of our nation's history did so under the banner of Christianity. They took children away from their parents so as to eradicate a culture. And they did it in Jesus' name. Naturally, we want to distance ourselves from that tragedy. We want to educate our accusers about denominations and church autonomy. But all of that just sounds like a big old excuse right now to our neighbors. And our neighbors don't want to hear that excuse. Our neighbors are furious right now with what the church has done. Now, that might feel unfair to you, but do you remember last week, and this is why I said it's like a case study. Last week, when one of the last points that our brother Matt made, he was talking about the sin of leaders. And do you remember when a, when a leader sins, it was far more serious the sacrifice, they had to take the blood of the sacrifice and go all the way into the center of the tabernacle. Why? Because the sins of the leaders are far more consequential. They affect everyone. When a leader sins, it leads to devastating consequences for everyone. Well, we're feeling that right now, aren't we? Our evangelism in the years, decades to come, is going to be much harder because of the sins of leaders of our past. The sins of leaders of our past have left entire generations for our neighbors reeling with the consequences of their actions. When leaders sin, everyone suffers. It's one of the major problems with our individualistic mindset. And you know I beat this drum all the time because it drives me crazy. This lie that we're just individuals. This lie that what we do doesn't affect others. Listen, if you are a Christian, if you, if you wear the name of Jesus, the way that you live at work does affect us. If I ever want to share the gospel with your coworker, when he hears Christian, he thinks of you. Fair or not. And whatever obstacles I have to overcome in sharing the gospel with him have been set up by you and your witness in the workplace. That's just reality. And the actions of others impact us. Well, the church was complicit in what happened. There was a lot to it. But make no mistake, the church was involved. And while we can stand up and say, hey, we're not that church, our neighbors hear none of it. Because we are the church. And whether or not we understand or agree with that, your neighbor does. And truth be told, your neighbor's right. We are the church. These things were done under the banner of Christianity. That does affect us. It's true. So then what do we do? Well, here's what I would put forward. I would suggest that now is not the time for us to be sharpening our debate swords. It's not the time for us to be arguing about how it's not fair for people to be blaming us for things we didn't do. It's not the time for you to share your, the Ben Shapiro YouTube clip. Now is the time for us to do what should have been done in the first place. Now is the time for us to repent. To point at that, that thing that was done in the name of Jesus and to declare that it was wrong. We need to point at that and to declare that the church did do wrong. And we need to repent to lay the excuses down. They're not going to help right now. They're not going to bring any healing. Sometimes you just need to take it on the chin. Repent for how miserably the church failed. I know it's not easy, but I do feel that that's what God would have us do in this moment. Third, if we're going to weep with those who weep, we need to take time to listen. Read the reports that are coming out. 
Read the stories from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Read the calls to action. Better yet, reach out to some of the indigenous people in your social circle. Ask them how they're processing this season. Seek to understand. If we're going to weep with those who weep, we need to take the time to hear their stories. And I confess, I've been so absolutely embarrassed over my ignorance. You know, even just it's, it, in every sphere, but I'll just talk about the sports sphere because that's where I often live. You know, five years ago, I'd be watching professional sports teams, the Washington Redskins, the Cleveland Indians, the Edmonton Eskimos. And I remember every once in a while, you'd hear people say, hey, you know, we should change the name of this team. And I, I remember always thinking, why are you so sensitive? Leave it alone. What a silly... I'm just so ignorant. Can you imagine what it feels like for a survivor of the residential school system to, to go to the store and to see this culture that essentially tried to erase your culture just, just recently in the past? But now here they are, and they've got a cartoon caricature of an indigenous person, and they're, they're profiting off of it, off of this, this joke with, with a a title that you don't appreciate, describing your people. That was wrong. That was racism. And it was so prevalent that I was ignorant of it. It happened right under our nose. I didn't even notice. Well, I'm noticing now, and I'm embarrassed, and I'm ashamed, and I'm listening. As Christians, we need to be mindful of these things. If we don't listen, we'll never understand. And if we're going to weep with those who weep so as to share the gospel with them, we need to understand. Finally, as we weep with those who weep, we need to learn so as not to repeat. Here's the thing. As Christians, we understand the depravity of the human heart. Jeremiah said, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? In humility... Let's acknowledge that we are capable of tremendous evil. And here, here's one way where we diverge a little bit from the, the narrative right now in our culture. Our culture entertains the idea that we finally arrived, that we're the first generation that has solved racism, that has overcome the sins of our fathers. And so we tear statues down, and we rip chapters out of our history books, and the underlying message in all of it is that we will be the ones to finally get it right. Friends, I lament to say, we will not be the ones to finally get it right. And neither will the people tearing the statues down. Because we are fallen. We all have blind spots. We all have prejudice. We all have hearts that are prone to wander. We will all look back and see areas that we are mortified and embarrassed. Therefore, while the world around us is looking back at history and proclaiming with the Pharisee, do you remember the story of the Pharisee? He's in the temple and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. As we look back on this, I think we are called to adopt the posture of the tax collector. It says, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful. That, that should be our posture. God, help. God, show us. God, reveal. God, God, let us learn. Help us to learn 
as we seek to, to display the love of Christ in this world, and we see how, how terribly wrong that goes, and it's happened again and again throughout history, God, be merciful to us. Help us to do this well. So in this moment, we listen so as to learn. I want to end with this question, what are we learning? And obviously, we're going to be learning for, for years and years to come. But there are three lessons that jump out at me that I'd say we, we are learning that we need to learn, that we need to store away now in this moment. What are we learning? For starters, political coercion is not a tool that Christians are to wield. You know, J.R.R. Tolkien captured this so well in The Lord of the Rings, and I'm referencing a lot because I'm reading it right now, so I'm sorry. But he, he you know, the ring... It's the ring of power. And everybody has this idea that if they could just get the ring, if they could get the power, well, they could solve everything. Right? He can't handle it, but I can. And if you give it to me, I'll solve everything. Well, that's exactly how we behave around power. Right? Think about this. The darkest moments in Christian history all took place when? When Christians attempted to wield that political power. The holy wars. The battles between Catholics and Protestants, the residential schools, all of those events were preceded by Christians who thought, wow, the sword of the state. I bet I could do a world of good with this. P.S. How incredibly foolish it is that we have a whole generation of young Christians coming up now who are once again clamoring to grab hold of political power, fixated on seizing it. It is foolish. The sword of the state does an awful job of resembling Christ. This is Jesus. Here's a picture of our Savior, Isaiah 42, 2-3. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not clench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. That imagery of a bruised reed he will not break. You imagine this little reed, and it's, you know how fragile those are. You're all having bonfires in your backyard. He's saying Jesus is so gentle. He can, he can handle this bruised reed. He won't break it, right? He, he's perfectly powerful and tender. Now, how do we resemble that with the sword of the state? The gospel is not a bylaw that you can impose upon people. Now, now, I imagine you might have an objection here. You might say, but pastor, are you suggesting that we should withdraw from the culture? To be clear, no. I pray often that we would have more Christian lawyers and more Christian politicians and more Christian judges. Yes and amen. I believe that we can do a world of good as we are salt and light in our community. Yes. But here's what I'm saying. Politics is not the answer for the problem that plagues our world. The hope of the world is not found in the passing of a bill or the stopping of a bill. The hope of the world is neither a conservative nor a liberal. The hope of the world is Jesus. And if history has taught us anything, it's taught us that until Jesus returns to set things right, the best of our leaders will leave us wanting and the worst of our leaders will leave us reeling. Political power is not what we should be after. It's not what Jesus was after. When they tried to put Jesus up in political power, he withdrew from the crowd. We're engaged in a spiritual battle. And we do the most good when we're fighting on our knees. Let's learn that. Second, 
What are we learning right now? We're learning that cultural uniformity is antithetical to the gospel. Cultural uniformity. Trying to make everyone look and behave and dress and talk the same. Cultural uniformity is antithetical, meaning it is the exact opposite of the gospel. Now listen, I, I can anticipate that there are going to be some, there's going to be some pushback. It's, well, pastors, there's, there's more nuance. Let me, let me add this level of nuance. Even if it was discovered, and it won't be discovered, even if it was discovered that no children died in these schools, the residential school system still represents a terrible tragedy. Why? Because it represents a concerted effort to erase a culture. You remember, probably a year and a half ago, we were walking through the book of Daniel. And you remember as we walked through the book of Daniel, we heard the story about how the Babylonians took these young Jewish men, their best and their brightest, and they took them out and they brought them into Babylon. And they taught them the new language and they made them eat new food. And in fact, they, they gave them new names. Now, a name is a really special, important thing, particularly in Judaism. But they took away these Jewish names, these Hebrew names, and they gave them names that actually reflected worship for the Babylonian gods. For example, Daniel, whose Hebrew name means, my judge is God, was renamed Belteshazzar, which roughly means, Nebo, protect his life. Or Azaria, whose name in Hebrew means God has helped, was renamed Abednego, which means servant of Nebo. So you can imagine this young Azaria, this godly man missing mom and dad, missing home, missing his culture, eating new food, speaking a new language. His whole history has been erased. And every time somebody calls his name, they say, hey, servant of Nebo, over here. And as we reflected on that, we thought, what a devastation. What a tragedy. How could the Babylonians do that to a people? And yet, we did that. That's what happened at the residential schools. Our government wanted to remove the native from our indigenous people. And they hired the church to do it, often in many of the places, and said, you can teach them the Bible as you do it. And we were complicit. Unless we deceive ourselves into thinking this was an isolated incident, let's be honest and acknowledge that we as Christians have historically struggled with this. This is a real battle for us. We've often believed the lie that leading someone to Christ also includes erasing all of their cultural distinctives. We often believe the lie that leading someone to Christ also includes teaching them to dress like us and to sing like us and to speak like us. But that sad vision of the church, that monochromatic church that only speaks in one language and only sings the songs we like and only dresses like us looks nothing like what we find in Revelation 9. Remember, Revelation 9 is where John is lifted up and he sees the church around the throne of God. This beautiful scene. What does he see? It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Christians, this story ends with glorious diversity 
many nations, many tribes, many languages and tongues. And the plurality actually adds to the beauty of the worship that will take place around the throne. And when the true church spans across the throne, this reflection of the church that we live in here, we'll be there, but we'll be a sliver. And praise God for that. I'm happy to be a sliver. I'm excited to see what that day will look like. And if that is how the story ends, then our job is not to make Canadian Baptists. Our job is to make disciples of Jesus and to make them in all the nations. This is why our approach to missions has shifted so much over the last years, right? Rather than sending someone from our community into Southeast Asia, we send those funds instead and we fund someone in Southeast Asia to reach their people. The mission strategy of sending the great white hope has been laid to rest and it will stay there. But oh, how I pray that this church family would increasingly resemble that scene in Revelation. I pray that we would see great plurality and diversity in the years to come. That God would bring young and old and rich and poor and white and black and expressive and reserved and that we would be a living illustration to the world that the gospel has power to bring people together. Jesus did not come to eradicate culture. He came to breathe his gospel life into culture and to unite it all into this one beautiful tapestry with Christ at the center. And we all have a sinful voice inside of us that thinks it's our job to make clones of ourselves. It's not. One Levi is, feels like one too many sometimes. And I will so rejoice on the day when an indigenous brother or sister comes to worship with us and perhaps they feel comfortable enough to dress in their traditional garb and they dance and they rejoice unto the Lord. What a sweet day that would be. I pray in faith that that day would come because the gospel is for all the nations. And finally, as we conclude, I'm freshly reminded that our indigenous neighbors need to hear the truth about Jesus. Perhaps this feels like a counterintuitive note to land on in a sermon like this, but it is the note that I want you to hear loud and clear. I had second and third thoughts about this sermon. And it wasn't because I was concerned about what needed to be said. I weep with those who weep feels like something that should be said in this moment. My bigger concern was with the motives that you might be attempted to, you might be tempted to assume in me. So let me just put my motives right on the table. Why are we, why are we talking about this today? We're talking about this today because indigenous people need to hear the truth about Jesus. We're talking about this today because they were lied to. And the gospel was misrepresented. And they were handed a counterfeit with no power to save. And that breaks my heart. Our indigenous neighbors deserve to hear the truth about Jesus. Because he is the answer to all the wrongs that have been done. He is the only one who can heal. He is the only one who can restore. He is the hope and the life and the light and the way home. And I want to share that good news. But right now there is an enormous chasm between us and the indigenous community. And I'm afraid that rather than doing the hard work of bridging that chasm, we will turn away from our neighbors and we'll justify our actions with a world of excuses. It's, it's too impossible. The distrust just runs too deep. The chasm's too great. Reconciliation is impossible. To which I would say, 
No. No. Absolutely not. I won't believe that. Nothing is impossible with our God. He builds bridges. He mends relationships, even relationships that have been generationally injured. He restores trust. He can do that. But if we want to see any of that happen, if we want to see the door for evangelism open once again for our neighbors, we need to take the first step. We need to understand. We need to weep. We need to love. We need to repent. And then perhaps we'll have an opportunity to introduce our neighbors to the Jesus that they were wrongly introduced to in the past. To that end, would you join me in praying? Heavenly Father, we surrender ourselves to you today. And we acknowledge that who are we? Who are we? But for the grace of God, Lord, we are capable of tremendous evil. And so, Lord, we, just, we look back on these things that have happened. And, Lord, we just acknowledge that, God, we are a, a needy people who need your grace. And, God, we look forward And it is hard for us to envision a future wherein we have any opportunity to love our indigenous neighbors, have any opportunity to build a relationship. Lord, it feels like this fracture is so great right now. So we surrender to you. And God, we pray that you would would build that bridge. I pray that you would help us, just as individuals, as we go out into this community, to resemble you. God, that we would sound different than the culture we're living in. We would sound different than the people in our workplace as they talk through and navigate through this. Lord, I pray that you would help us just to be good listeners, to have wisdom. Lord, we need wisdom. Oh God, I pray that you would cause us to be salt and light. And I don't even know what that looks like, Father. I I have no idea. But I pray that you would lead us. And Lord, for the purpose of this sermon, this time, Lord, you know the motive in my heart. Lord, you know the motive in the hearts of your people. I pray that you'd be pleased with us. We're we're just heartbroken for things that have robbed you of glory and that have hurt people who are your creation. It breaks our heart. And Father, we just surrender it to you. We pray that you would help us. Help us to do better. Lord, help us to, as a church family, to just in some small way to get this right for your glory. Uh, Lord, that's what we're after. We're after your glory. And Lord, we just acknowledge that this world needs you. Everyone in this, we need you. God, our neighbors need you. The indigenous community needs you. And so help us. Help us to share the good news. Help us to be light. And Lord, we pray all these things. And lastly, Lord, I just surrender this sermon to you. God, I'm mindful of the fact, who am I? And what, if I've said anything that's unhelpful, let it be forgotten, let it wash away, but let your truth remain. God, press your truth in where it needs to be pressed in. I surrender that to you. I thank you that by the power of your spirit, you always preach a better sermon than anything that I could preach. And uh, Lord, on a day like today, we are just thankful for that, Lord. So preach a sermon into our hearts, press the truth in deep, and help us to live differently. Oh, that the gospel would change us, we pray. In Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?